This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. He's got another great guest. He's got an interesting story and a lot of good tips and uh, tactics for everybody. Please help me welcome my guest, Pasha Esfandiari. Hey, Pasha. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me on. A big fan of your show, Ferd. Well, thank you. Well, tell us more about your background and how you got an MH and we'll go from there. Sure. I think um, my story is a little unique in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, I'm proud of this now, but I'm a college dropout. And so... (laughs) You know, after I graduated high school, I just knew college wasn't for me. Um, I really got quickly into playing poker, uh, oddly enough. And then so I played poker professionally until I was about 26 years old. And I remember living in Las Vegas uh, and remembering, you know, that this lifestyle isn't for me. I knew I wanted to have a family one day and I knew I wanted to build something bigger than what poker can really offer. And uh, I decided right there and then I wanted to get out of it. And I wanted to go to real estate, which has always been my passion. Poker has always been a means to an end. So I went and interned for a few months for somebody who was flipping homes. He's still a mentor of mine today. Um, and I did that for, like, like I said, for three months. And then I went back to Vegas and I flipped my first home, which actually was a mobile home. Um, right. I, I even bought it in a, you know, 55 and over community. And I don't even realize that when I bought it, made all the mistakes that you could. And I still made $3,000 from it. And I was hooked, right? Um, And I really used and parlayed the poker winnings and the bankroll into buying more and more real estate and really just understanding the scaling of that. I did that for close to four years before I moved to Los Angeles. Um, And then I started doing land up construction. I did one flip and I, I realized there's this one area um, if anyone lives in LA or or knows this, but Mount Washington and Eagle Rock area was really uh, in in the path of progression. So I bought a bunch of land, and I was like, I know I have to develop, and I had to learn how to develop while developing. Um, that's, that's yeah, tough. <laughs> it's tough. I I you know I've always been the one that's always would bring on a partner who had the expertise. Okay, and I so did I did that for close to five years, um, and then I went into multifamily because that was just the progression. And I went to all the seminars and I learned all the the courses. Uh, I bought a few apartment complexes myself and my now partners convinced me to buy my first mobile home park. And I was looking through it through a multifamily lens. I said, look, the the rents are on top of market. I don't think we have a lot of growth. And they just simply looked at me and said, you have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, but they were they're really highly super smart, super intelligent, and they they know this industry like the back of their hand. And they said, We're buying this park. Would you like to join us? I said, sure. We bought that first park and I saw the cash on cash that was coming. I saw the tax depreciation compared to the multifamily. I saw all of these benefits and I really decided to go uh deep into it. Once I started learning the power of it by picking through my network and asking and picking everybody's brains, I just said, Wow. This is an opportunity. And if I was thinking that about mobile home parks, I wonder who else was thinking about mobile home parks this way. And I decided right there. And then I said, hey, guys, we have to keep going. And we started buying up as many properties as we could. 
And then one thing led to another, and we didn't want to turn off the the pipeline that we had, and we just kept growing as a company. So it kind of happened organically, and that's where we're at now. Nice. That's great. Now, tell me, where where do you buy your parks at? Is there, is there any types of parks that you don't want? Like, would, will you buy private utilities? Will you buy park-owned homes? Um, what's your kind of your preference of what you do and do not? Pursue? I'm a lot more conservative. Um, it, it probably shoots myself in the foot on the scaling aspect of it. Um, but we do look for parks. Uh, oh, first, the states are really kind of red states, mid, mid-south, midwest. Um, and we want to stay in between the around the three to $10 million range. Um, and those are the parks that we go after. We don't like doing a lot of infill. We don't, we, we like buying parks that already have most of the homes on there. We will buy parks with park owned homes, but they have to be nineties and newer models. Um, and so obviously to RTO them or sell them off as well. Uh, we have about a ratio within our company that we want to keep it under 15% for infills throughout okay. our portfolio. Um, and that's something that we look for. As we're growing our business, you know, and, and developing out the sales team and infill team, I think that's that ratio can get bigger, but we want to fall into those uh, problems. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a good, good approach. Yeah. We were, we were talking offline too. I mean, just the pros and cons of infill, you know, the, they really slow down growth as far as scaling other parks because they take so much work themselves. Yeah. But if you do an infill park, you know, you'll probably get a higher you know, ROI on that particular property if you're successful, but your chances of hitting your pro forma, uh, you know, are, are at a greater risk. It's just, you know, more, there's generally more variance because you know, more things can go wrong. So yeah, definitely on my parks that I've bought those that, clip exactly the pro forma are those that don't have infill those yeah. infill, some of them we outperform mm-hmm. and we've trailed behind and you got to then you got to then you got to take more resources plowed at that park to catch up and it's like well now you can't go look at a new deal so it's like i've had to turn off the acquisition spigot at certain period certain periods like we can't buy anything this entire quarter we got to infill this one we got to fix this one etc so pros and cons for sure yep i want to say on to that i think you know you're you're so unique and i think that's how most operators should be because most people are really I just want to buy this. I have investors or I, I want to buy these parks and don't understand that you really have to give it a ton of attention. You don't ever want to fall behind. Right. And that's really the scary part. When we look at a deal, we always underwrite for everything to be able to go wrong. But what I always try to tell everybody and uh, other investors, not even in my own deals, is that if you have find an operator where the deal has to go right and everything has to go right, those are the ones I would be afraid of. Um, yeah, no, good point. I mean, no. that's why I've, I've structured my syndications. We got investors in about half our deals, and we've we've structured them such that um, we underwrite them as if it just goes okay. Yep. But if it excels and we do do even do much better, the ROI is going to be a lot higher for the total project. The deal level returns. So we get a bigger split. So we have another hurdle we have to hit, but yeah. if we get our split. And if we hit a certain IRR hurdle, we get a bigger chunk. So it's like, look, if we don't perform, we're doing it for practice. And you guys are getting just like, you know, an average deal. But if we right. do perform, you're getting a way above average deal, but we're getting an extremely high ROI for mm-hmm. our time, but it's based on performance. So that seemed to work. It seems to work well for fundraising because people kind of see our, our, you know, we're kind of yoked together and rolling yep. in the same direction where it's hit or misses if you know do you outperform do you outperform? and i had one deal was like really outperforming and then we had 
big problem tenant and a couple of things. And then it like just plateaued for a while. And it's like, right. oh crap, you evict this guy. Well, now he goes to the next house. The druggie's there. You got to evict that. And all of a sudden it's like, how did we go minus five? It's like yep. one family of crazy people. <laughs> then, you know, took out five units, you know, and then you got to demo some. It's like, oh my gosh, we were yep. feeling like crazy. But, you know, so they, they can be a roller coaster, uh, you know, just like anything else, I guess. Yeah. Every, every park, has its own unique challenges, right? And so I think, you know, really coming into this business, you have to learn that every property yeah, is, is is a little, can be tough at times. I know we, we buy in typically C areas, is, you know, if we had to really kind of classify it, but there's always going to be trouble tenants. Like this is why, so, you know, anyone who's going to do a performer or underwrite, you should always build in a lot of cushion, just like you do. And I, what one thing that you said that I really love is that you incentivize your uh, equity or your rewards with the investors. I think everyone should do that. That's something that we do as well, too. Um, and uh, so it's it's just a really a dual incentivized way. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. You, you mentioned a minute ago that you you buy in kind of, you know, C or lower areas. And you mentioned me offline, you buy in tertiary areas. Why tertiary or secondary versus prime markets? I mean, obviously there's a pricing difference, uh, but have you found other than pricing or cap rate there to be some some benefits? Yeah, I mean, I think where there's less competition, uh, you're always going to get a little bit of a higher reward. I was telling you offline that I, I, at least me personally, believe that this opportunity that we have to buy these, you know, traditionally mom and pop seller properties um, are going to be gone in five to seven years. There's more operators like you and myself and everybody else now right. who are buying these properties. So the when they go full cycle in five years from now, they're going to be mostly from operators, right? Um, and so most of the juice is going to be squeezed out. So this is why we go to secondary and tertiary markets because it's it's a market that's fractured. And there's less competition, even though a lot of people still want to buy them. And this is the way we decided to build our company because, you know, we don't want to go into multifamily and, and just get 14, 15% IRR returns. We wanted to, you know, those, those extra few points when you really kind of log it through, you know, 30 years of investing is massive, that compound interest on it. So those few extra percentage points mean a lot. Um, and this is the market we want to go after right now. Yeah, no, I I agree with you on everything you just said. We buy similar, a lot of similar markets. We've got some parks in uh, in A markets, but um, mm -hmm. can't get as many as we want in A markets. So we look in B right. markets and C markets, um, try to cluster them and stuff for scale and for you know regional management type activities. Yes. But one thing I you know I hope you're wrong on the five to seven years because I, I hope said, I'm wrong too. <laughs> that's that's the time frame I said three years ago. So I've been wrong, <laughs> or at least right. I we'll see. But I said, oh, people ask me, oh, probably five to seven years. Mm -hmm. I said that three years ago. So if if, if I'm right, then we're we're, uh, we're running out of time. Yeah, I I think you know for me it's it's to keep the urgency up for this. Um, and I was telling you offline the reason why Evo Capital even came about was only because we didn't want to stop buying these opportunities. We we would regret it 10 years down the line of not getting these opportunities. And we would have been, man, we like I can't believe we missed out on that. And so that's that's what happened. So I I hope you and I are both wrong, but I definitely want to keep up my urgency in what I'm doing. I think there's going to be a second wave um not on the A parks um but on on the B and C parks, a second wave of operator to operator from failed operator to yes. skilled operator because there's you know and i've bought a couple parks like this but i mean um 
I know I know several guys that guys and gals that I'm like, they are so far over their skis, mm-hmm. you know, and some of them have been clients and I've tried to give them guidance and they're just I'm like, I mean, one one in particular stands out where these guys told me, yeah, we're gonna buy this, we're gonna infill this much, you know, I'm gonna infill twenty homes in the first four months. We're gonna wow. do a, we're gonna do a cash out refi in month six. We're gonna get all our money back and put a million dollars in our pocket. And these guys were eighteen to twenty two years old, had mm-hmm. never done a deal, had uh, seller finance deal, another no balance sheet. Um, one of them I think had filed bankruptcy, so they like, did not have good credit. And I'm looking at them, I'm like, I personally cannot pull off that business plan from an operation and I personally cannot pull off that business plan to get in the bank to give me that kind of terms and that kind of refi that quickly. And I have more experience. I didn't tell them I'm more, I'm smarter than you, but I thought that also, and I have more money, more liquidity, more net worth, and I can't get to any of those terms. How are you guys going to do this? And they're like, well, we just, we're just going to work really hard. And then they, they proceeded forward and you know how the movie know. ended, you know, yeah, it, didn't, of course. it didn't go well. Right. And then, Oh, by the way, there was a, a failing lagoon and I mean, it's like everything go wrong. I'm like, Oh, and a know? lagoon. It's like all this stuff. Wow. And there's like, there's like several <laughs> deals and I've got several clients like that. Um, some of them former clients, I guess at this point, but where I'm just like, I try to give you guys some guides, but like, you, you know, like it's, and it's some stuff. It's like, it's not even my, my own self-interest. I'm like guys, right. you have to get a phase one or guys, you have to inspect that. Like, I don't sell phase ones. I don't inspect lagoons. So I'm not telling you like, you really should get your title commitment reviewed, pay your lawyer. Mm-hmm. Like, this is me telling you, you need to pay a different professional. And then they're like, yeah, those are expensive. We're not going to do that. And yeah. like, so, you know, not, so that those operators already scooped up these deals in mm-hmm. the last five years, but those deals will come back around for a second round. Um, and they're not stable enough to get uh, tons of institutional grade interest. Yeah, that's, you know what, you, you nailed on the head. That's what we're seeing a lot of right now, too, in, in combination with the mom and pop sellers, is that upper, uh, other operators who took on too much that they can chew, and and now they're coming back to us. And they're like, you know, we can't handle this. This is too much of an operational nightmare. Or multifamily investors who came into this thinking, oh, it'll be easy. And they see, you know, I think people get um, tricked by the demand that is for mobile home parks. Yes, the demand is through the roof. I think we we both know that. But the infill component is is really hard to do. Getting somebody across the finish line, making sure they qualify, getting homes in, setting them all the things and all the logistics that go behind all the manpower, all the, the paperwork is really, really tough. Right. And yeah. so, but but the demand is there. I mean, we're we're and I'm sure you are too, massively inundated with leads all the time and how do we process those and how do we get it? And then, you know, I I have a question for you. When you underwrite a deal, I'm sure it's market dependent. How many do you underwrite for um, infills? I'm talking about new homes. Do you think you can fill a year? Well, You're you're right that it's market dependent. So it totally depends. And you say new homes, sometimes the new homes are zero. So it's newer used to how I look at them depends on the market. Um, I've got a market in mid Missouri right now that I, I don't remember what I underwrote on it, but what we did was we brought in 20 homes in one year. Um, wow. I got a market in a smaller town, Illinois. I underwrote that we would do six a year mm-hmm. and we're at like, we're two year and a half years in, we've only done like nine. So yeah. we're, you know, we haven't been able to move them as fast. And it's a nice park, this one in Illinois too. It's just, and we get, we get the leads, but it's people like, Hey, I got 500 a month to spend. Yeah. 
and like we can't help you for 500 a month all in you know for a you know forty thousand dollar you know two thousand five house like we just yep. can't make it work when we in lot rents only i think lot rents 290 there so not like not a lot not like lot rents 500 bucks but like 290 plus home payment we can't get you in at five we're talking like 750 850 you know some of the units thousand you know so infill is dependent um yeah I, I've you know one thing that you know we've I've been surprised on a couple of deals where we've infilled like crazy. Um, one deal in particular, you know, where we did, I think I did sixty-two homes in in wow. in the total by refi was twenty-three months. So by the time I did the capex, I did mm -hmm. I did that in like fourteen months um, of actual like trying to bring in homes. Right. It was a great market, great park. So I mean, it's like you're you know we have basically doing one a week. And we do we buy them in like chunks of four or six or something but like sales yeah. is like one a week so it's just like crazy um it was it was great but then other parks it's like we get a you get a sale a quarter you're like well okay so just trying to underwrite that is you know is it is 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 the challenge i mean it's kind of a roll of the dice I'm obviously you can do test ads you can yeah. you know you know do a number of things um look at the you know housing stats look at the income stats you, know, you can assess the what seemingly is the income or credit capacity of the residents by looking at their cars, look at the quality of the homes, things like that. Um, but I, I, I haven't been able to nail it to the science where it's like yeah. spot on. So that's why what I've learned to do is just um, underwrite a little conservative, but then give myself splits where if I overperform, I get a, the bulk of the profitability because I've overperformed, but I got to make sure I don't underperform. Uh, yeah, that's that's the most important key part. Yeah, okay. I was just asking because you know we we always have a component of used infill homes, but when it's the new homes for us is somewhat newer, but we don't even underwrite for any of the new homes in year one, and we do seven in year two, um, and and seven yeah. a year maximum for now as we're getting our systems to to get better and better, and I think we're going to organically be able to grow into a higher number, but. No, I just want to make sure we never fall behind on a pro forma number. Yeah, generally, I I underwrite zero infill in the first six months because yep. I got to just the transition and the capex and all that. One thing that I've gotten a little smarter on is looking at the season of closing. You know, so like mm -hmm. I bought a property in November and got cold, got snowy. Like we didn't get the road repairs all done. We didn't get the submetering done. And I'm certainly not going to bring any homes in in the first X number of months. But had we... But had we closed in different time periods, then I may have changed some of those capex projects, and then changed some of the. Um, this is in Iowa, so it got, it right. got cold. We got thirty inches of snow, right? So I mean, it's crazy cold right there, there right now. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the season, the location of the park, geographically from a weather, and then also the season of the year, also can impact your infill and so on. Yeah, one, I mean, one, a, a tip a tip that we've I've learned and gotten smarter on is. We've under started to underwrite some decreases in occupancy right out of the gate because we don't know all these tenant-owned homes that are their quality, but we, there always seems to be somebody, in some cases five somebodies that when we when we show up and start enforcing rules and enforcing rent, they can't make it, and then they yeah. get evicted, and then we get their house and it's a dumpster fire, and we have to demolish it. And we're like, oh, it was 40 out of 60 occupied. Cool. Let's count on 40. It's like, no, no, you're really going to get 38. You're not yeah. going to get 40. I love, so I, I, made love that, I made that mistake before. In, in one part particular, we had like six or seven people didn't make it. Dang, we're seven in the hole. You know, it, takes, yeah. it took a while to get back up.
Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely always underwrite for everything that can go wrong as well. I, I love to hear that. I love hearing other operators who are conservative like that. Yeah, you just get more conservative every time you're wrong, right? It's, it's, it's true. Like, you point, learn. Yeah, at some you point, just... you're like, I mean, sometimes I'm like, I look at this, I'm like, we're so conservative on this, we can't even buy the deal. So, like, all right, let's, but we'll start there. Like, okay, we'll we'll ratchet it back up. Like, all right, of course. You know, what's this... worst case scenario? What's middle case scenario? What's yeah. best case scenario? And then sometimes I look at worst case scenario. I'm like, wait a second. Our expense ratio in year one is seventy. In <laughs> ten years, when we're full, our expense ratio is still fifty. Like, yeah, that's nice. guys. If we're running it like that, we got a bigger problem. It's like, okay, what, <laughs> yeah. you know, we don't really need that much of this and that and the other. You know, like I got a, right. I got contingency and I got miscellaneous costs. It's like, okay, I don't really need all that. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, good question. Um, so, what what other tips you want to share with us? What 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 do you guys? What else do you have? That's maybe a special sauce that you guys that you guys are able to do from an operation standpoint. You know, I I don't know if there's a special sauce. I think we're just incredibly diligent with what we do. And I give all the kudos to my my partner who's head of operations. I think we just have been able to make it so that we can take as much responsibility away from the property managers and get them focusing on the important things that are needed. Uh, we hire VAs um, from Latin America, which we find that works really well. You know, most of our, I would say at least half of our tenants are all Spanish speaking. So we, we do, we have a lot of Spanish speaking um, employees. There's no secret sauce to this for, you know, anyone who's listened to your show understands the operations. It's just going there and doing the right thing. I think, I think one thing that really stands out, and I think that one thing I'm incredibly proud of is that our first core value is people first. And if you treat tenants like real people who, you know, are like they, like you would treat them in a luxury A class, they feel that and they, they, and they get the sense of that. I also, anytime we, we bring on a new property manager, I think it's really refreshing. I think it's the best compliment that we can get that say that, wow, you guys really care. Like we're here to make money. Don't get me wrong, but we actually really do care. And we're always going to do the way, the right thing and we're never going to cut any corners. And I think, and, and we also try to really empower our property managers to think like an owner. Hey, go. There's nothing that you can do that's going to hurt us tremendously. Go out there, make a decision. And if we need to make an adjustment, well, let's just talk about it. So that way they can keep doing it. So um, yeah. in, in, in collection with all the other things that you have to do when you get a property. No, I think in general, that's a good strategy of empowering others at last piece in particular, but I'm curious how that works or what your management structure is. You know, these VAs, what are they doing sure. versus not? Because you know, we have some parks that we can't afford a full-time manager because it's too small or too rural. So we have a park greeter. Well, the average park greeter is less skilled than the average park manager. Uh, obviously, the greeter is less expensive, but also yep. that we give them less responsibility. So, you know, I've I've done both pros and cons of both. I'm curious how your you know on site management team works, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then how the VAs can help. Yeah, we have a lot of parks that you know have the same thing: our eyes and ears, essentially serving out notices, posting up things, collecting if we have to, sending us videos. So we really have a a really uh, system to just make sure that the property is running properly. And then our, our VAs will handle anything else, leases, payments, anything like that. Um, we'll go through, we'll go through that and they're all attached. to. Who's doing, manager. who's doing, who's doing the sales and leasing? Is it remote? Yes. No so, showings? So we have one sales manager that's located in, in Texarkana, which is our biggest portfolio. So he could show 
properties out there, but then we're going to bring out another sales manager who's going to be remote, right? And so what we really want to do is, again, just go back into the powering the property manager is that they need to be the quarterback. They are going to get all the leads in and they're going to quarterback, hey, we got these leads here. I need you to follow up with this person and then have that person help walk them through the finish line. Because, you know, what I really love about this is that the demand is insane and it's home ownership. And that's where I say it's not a sale, just walking them through the finish line. They already have it. They already want it. Right. But you have to make them feel comfortable with the purchase. And I think that's really important because any most tenants that come in and want to buy a new home, this may be the first purchase where they are signing their name to something. Oh, right. Yeah. You just have to have a lot of patience in that. Yeah. Well, a lot of them they don't they don't even want to buy or they don't think they can buy it. They want to rent. And then they get there and they're like, wow, this is pretty nice. I mean, I think I tell our staff like you could these things should sell themselves. You know, the value proposition of a mobile home compared to the class C apartment is in any market is is strong. You know, like you know, we got, you know, you got a porch, you got a grill, you can have a dog, you got a driveway right outside of your house, you have yep. a yard, you have amenities in common area. There's nobody on top of you, nobody on the left, nobody on the right. It's 1,216 square feet at 900 bucks. It's less than 75 cents a foot. Yep. The crappy apartment is a dollar twenty-five. But where do you yeah. sign? Here's where you sign. You know, I mean, I used, yeah. I used to sell them myself. You know, I'm one of the, I'm one. Not all the operators, syndicators have, but I've sold a lot of mobile homes. I'm like, mm -hmm. it's easy to get them there. Now, it was not easy to get them approved. You know, right? Get, yeah, that's them. exactly right. That's the hard part. But I mean, yeah. uh, it's like I just sometimes I'm, sometimes these managers or greeters, I'm like, how can you not sell that house? I used to do like a traveling open house where I'm like. I'm coming to your park on Saturday and I'm taking your commissions with me. And they're right. like, I'm serious. I'm like, and I'm, you get, guys got to sell And these they're things. like, oh crap. Like, let me, let me kick it into gear. Some of them are like, oh crap. Some of them are like, yeah, whatever. You know? So what I used to do is I'd go do a traveling uh, open house and I'd say, I'm going to, you're going to work with me and I'm going to, you're going to job shadow me and you're going to get the commission. You yeah. know, like, so I'm just like, but I'm working. I mean, you, know, you wouldn't have got it without me perhaps, but it's like, look, then they really appreciate that. Like, dang boss is yeah. here getting us commission but it's like that's that's an ex that's exhausting you know it is drive, drive around and do one after the other mm -hmm. <laughs> then you yeah, gotta I, have to do then you gotta do them at odd times and stuff like i got an open house at 10 noon two and eight you know so yeah. it's a lot and when you're dealing with a lot of people and a lot of energy and being mentally on it's very draining um but i think this is why i'm excited for you um you know creating the systems and yeah. and creating this so that this could it could help scale, right? And get those training programs yeah, without systems, you having to physically be there. Yeah, systems and processes are definitely necessary to scale. To scale. And I, my dad just gave me a book. Um, I haven't read the whole book yet, but it's called uh, 17 Reasons Why Your Company Is Not Investment Grade and What You Could Do About It. And mm -hmm. it's a, for most co founders of companies, they got the founders got too much of the skill, too much of the uh, value in the operation in them. And then nobody wants to buy that business from you because yep. it's like, you know, without you, it's not worth as much. So it's like, you know, he told a story of like this guy had a massive organization, call it, you know, 750 people. And, but the guy was doing everything. And then he retired and the business fell apart. Yeah. So it's like, should he have been proud that he was that necessary? Or should he have been disappointed that after all those years of running that company, he never structured it or built it in a way to carry on the legacy of it and to continue on. Yeah. Uh, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of that happens, unfortunately.
It's tough. I mean, I think we're going through the same thing. You know, uh, my partner, we're, we're asking him to take a step back. We hired an incredible regional manager. We have incredible park managers, but he feels such a sense of ownership and he's done this for so long. And so it's, it's, we actually really just had that conversation about 30 minutes before this call. I'm oh, like, wow. hey, are you, are you going to be okay with this? Because we have people who are ready to step up to the plate. And he's like, listen, it's like the analogy is, it's like my daughter's going to go to college when she's 18 and she's going to leave. Like, you know, am I going to like it? No, but is it necessary? <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's just people, you know, that's, it's part of, if you, if you run a company, if you work at a company long enough, but if you really, if you found it or owned it in particular, it becomes part of your identity. So when people, um, I, I read a case study in Tiger 21 um, which is a group of high net worth individuals that I'm on their e-blast list. And I read an article and they say, ask people, would you sell, I think you have to have 25 million or 50 million minimum, 20 million, 20 minimum assets to get in the door. And they added a study that said, you know, do, when you sell your company before you sold your company, did you think that it would be easy, medium or hard for you to be done with it? And mm -hmm. the average was easy and medium. Everybody was easy, medium, easy, medium. And then, they did it in order. They most of them they sold the company. They got a you know maybe they got a hundred million dollars and they joined it. This study and the study came out again, and they said everybody said it was hard. And some people said it was nearly impossible. And people are getting depression and stuff because yeah. they're like, you were so much of your identity was wrapped up in it, and you and you you don't get to work with your old work friends anymore. They you know some of them got laid off and they don't like you. Some of them are working for the new mean boss. Um, it's, some of them can't afford to go to you know, Europe for a 30 day cruise with you, you know, yeah. so you, you don't go to beers after dinner. It's like you're, you lose some social contact. You lose, you know, you were the boss, you were the visionary and everybody loved you in your mind at least. Right. And, and now you're rich and alone. Yeah. It's like, you know, money can't buy happiness. It was like the part of the lesson there. It was, I thought it was fascinating. I, it reminds me of, um, I I'm good friends with Bill Perkins. He wrote the book die with zero. Oh, um, I read that recently. <laughs> yeah. It's he's, He's incredible. And I've known him for about 13 years. We actually went through an emotional intelligence course together at the same time for 100 days. And we just became really close from there. But he was just speaking. I was I was doing a keynote with him um, or, or a fireside chat, rather. And he talked about this same principle about how you get so wrapped up, at least in the American society and culture, is that you get wrapped up in who your work friends are, who your work life is. And he's, it's like you have to exercise the other muscle of getting outside of work and actually going and meeting new people and going doing new experiences with people outside of your uh, work social circle. Because if you, you you wrap up your whole identity in that, it's not going to serve you well. And that you need to practice that new muscle of, of, of going out and experiencing life. And obviously, for anyone who hasn't heard of the book or read the book, he just talks about your, your arc of your spending curve of when you should be making it and how much you should be spending on experiences rather than just keeping it because you can't die with it. You die with zero, no matter what. Yeah. Well, tell your friend, I'd really like the book and it, it's actually it was part of that in a couple of, I've read a lot of books. I read a lot of books and always have, but I read, I read a lot about this kind of stuff lately. And that was one of them. And tomorrow I'm planning on taking, taking the day off to go snowmobiling with my dad and I was oh, something awesome. I haven't done in over a decade. We did it at our, yeah. our youth. I got my snowmobile license when I was like 10, so I could drive in state parks. I love this stuff, but I, I've been working so hard for so I haven't gone snowmobiling in over 10 years. He has the machines. Yeah. I just kind of yeah. show up and do it. And I'm like, we're doing it tomorrow. 
So weather permitting, it's, it's getting warmer here. But so I'm, that's part of the thing. It's like, you know, you, you don't need another dollar. You don't need another million dollars at some no, point. No, right? you, you don't. You, you got enough to be happy and be healthy and take care of your family. Go go goof off once in a while. Yeah. I think once you get to a certain point um, and you realize that even having just like double it doesn't really change your lifestyle as much. It doesn't really change much for you. Right. So what's what's really the point at the end of the day? That book him himself just being a mentor in my life have really shaped how I perceive life and what it, the way I look at things. And like you, I take my father on a annual trip every single year because I quantified he may have five more good years of being able to walk around, travel across the world and go on tour sites. And I said, wow, when you quantify that with your parents, you're like, oh, crap, I got to do this. This is important no matter what. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. I I read a book by Matthew Kelly. He's a he's got read a couple of New York Times bestselling books, but he also is a Catholic writer. Um, so some spiritual books, and he talks about Sundays. He goes, "How many more Sundays do you have?" And he goes, "Estimate how long you're going to live." And just back into him, and he goes, "How often do you see your father? You know, you only go home for Christmas. You go home. Mm-hmm. How many more Christmases does he have for you to get? Like, you know what? It's like maybe you shouldn't get in that fight at the Thanksgiving table. You know, it's like." You know what? This is this is pretty powerful stuff. Like you know what? He who he who dies with the most gold still dies. You know that's correct. So, that's hundred uh, percent correct. So yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That was that's good stuff, Pasha. Well, um, appreciate that uh, commentary and you know, getting off track, but that's a good discussion to have for sure. Um, related right. to MH, MH is a busy business, man. It's tough. You got to work, 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 and you got to take a break sometimes. Um, There's something happening every single day, all the time, no matter what. 24 7 especially yes. when you get a, a massive a, a quite a sizable uh portfolio so. yep i got a call last wednesday from my construction manager that the uh the main line of our park in des moines froze oh, he's like what the main line that's a big you know we gotta get that's that taken care of and he can he, uh, you know i just gave out I think like $12,000 of cold weather bonuses yesterday. These guys like, Hey, everybody that was out there doing it. Got a thousand bucks on top. Right. Cause it's brutal, but uh, that is brutal. I I love that you did that for them. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it, it, it makes you feel a little warmer when you're out there you're, next time. Like it's going to be cold again, two weeks from now. Like, hey, I might not I give them another thousand each, but like, that's a big number for a lot of these guys, you know? And right. Um, Hey, extra. And we paid them hourly, of course, too. So it's like, mm-hmm. Hey, they really got, you know, really got a nice chunk. Uh, what other tips that. or tricks, anything you want to share before we jump? I mean, I think the last thing I think of anyone who is, I'm going to cater this to somebody who's just getting into mobile home parks, I think, rather than um, someone who's already experienced, is just be be really careful. Be really careful in your underwriting and pro forma. Do not be afraid to partner up with someone. I think that was the biggest um you know, thing for me to unlock our scalability in the business is just partnering with the right people or ask everyone. I always say in real estate, what I love about it is that everyone's willing to teach others. We're always willing to help the person that's trying to come up. And so just ask, say, hey, I have this deal. What do you think about it? Give me five minutes of your time. And most people are like, yeah, you know, I've had plenty of mentors in my real estate career help me out with what I do. Um, And then also, um, if you're going to evaluate markets like a multifamily operator, I would go get an education and just go surround yourself with whatever you can, whatever boot camps and books and this podcast I know has helped me tremendously. I've, I've listened to so many of your shows. Um, and then start with education first, get get your numbers right, and then partner. What's up, buddy? 
No, those are great. Those are great tips. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, get smart as soon as you can, as fast as you can, as much as you can, because it'll save you tons. And then on the, mm-hmm. the mentorship or partnership, yeah, it's, it's win-win. I mean, I've had mentors in my life, but then in, in MH in particular, I was I was a mentor to another guy, and he uh, he brought me some deals. You know, he, we made a lot of money together. I taught him a lot of stuff. He went out on his own. He's been successful on his own. You know, good for him. Good for me. Yeah. Um, it, you know, there's 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 a win-win. You know, if you got the right deal. You can make you can make a partnership work. That's exactly right. You got to you got to be have the common goals and um, you know and so on. But uh, definitely can yep. be helpful. One and one last thing I will say is that anyone who wants to get into mobile home parks um, and investing are not always are nervous about how much they need money. I, I always tell them find the right deal and you will find the money. I promise. That's right. Yeah. Good point. Great point. Yep. All right, Pasha. Where can people find you if they want to uh, look you up after this? Um, I think the best way is just go to my website is just www.evocapital.net. If you want to email me directly, just pasha at evocapital.net. All right, man. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Ferd. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.